Well, um, I know it's a bit of a cliche. Thank you very much for having me. It's a real privilege to be here. Um, I think I should partly explain how I got to be here, because it was kind of through a prophetic word um, given at a meeting that both Steph and I were at um, last term about me coming and speaking about cultural transformation. And I guess Steph thought it was from God, because I'm here. Um, so I felt I needed to explain a bit before we get into the Bible about what cultural transformation is all about. Uh, that's part of my responsibility um, to work alongside Dave Stroud in heading that ministry up at Christchurch. It's our conviction that every part of life matters to God, not simply what happens in and through the church. And so we want to encourage, particularly, I guess, through the workplace, which is where most of us will spend most of our lives, 70,000 hours or so over a course of an average lifetime, that we really give ourselves, not just to being good at what we do, but to actually changing what we do so that this city and this nation is different and better off in 70 years' time because Christians are being influential and giving everything they've got in their workplaces. And so we've got mums and teachers and local counsellors that we're encouraging to work together to change local schooling and to get cleaner streets. We want journalists in the media to change this nation's obsession with sex and image. We want to, we've got a recruitment consultant starting up a new company. He looked at the recruitment industry and thought it's not a particularly godly industry. I want to start up a new company based on godly principles. He started it last January. He's already got a turnover of half a million pounds and offices just off Oxford Street, and he's only 24 years old. And so we want to encourage politicians to speak out for justice in the media and those in academics to reclaim the fight for truth in this nation. Yeah. Uh, my own background is in media. I've been working for Christchurch for around about uh, four years now. Before that, I spent seven years working with the BBC uh, in radio, doing stuff like football commentating. I've got some TV and print experience as well. And uh, outside of that, for a number of years, I've been building what has been a very warm relationship with the head of religion and ethics at the BBC a guy by the name of Michael Wakelin. Um, it's my conviction that God and religion and the church are being talked about in this nation more than at any other time in my lifetime. Books like The God Delusion by Dawkins and God Is Not Great by Christopher Hitchens. And so I just wrote off to him saying, look, I've got some journalism uh, and some religion experience. Uh, maybe we could work together, you know, I'll, I'll work for free. There's an opportunity out there to get some good positive programming to positively convey what the church, what Christianity, what religion does in this nation. And we had some very warm correspondence, but some of you may remember that last May, the head of religion and ethics left his position, and his replacement was only the second non-Christian and first ever Muslim to occupy that role, a guy by the name of Akhil Ahmed. And it's my conviction that a number of Christians reacted inappropriately to his appointment. One Christian lobby group aggressively campaigned against his appointment one minister in this nation came out in the press and described his appointment as, and I quote, a juvenile mistake. Hundreds of Christians wrote off to the BBC complaining about a Muslim getting that role. And I would humbly suggest that is not the most positive way of advancing the kingdom of God. And I would also humbly admit that I at times have been guilty of taking on a defensive mentality that my role as a Christian is to hold back this invisible tide of evil rather than using the God-given creativity that's in all of us to initiate, start new things, have a go at something. And so after much prayer, I wrote off to the new head of religion and ethics at the BBC, Akhil Ahmed, just saying, look, I'm really excited about your appointment. I've seen what you've done at Channel 4. I'm impressed with what you, you bring to the table. Uh, here's a number of program ideas. Um, I'd like to build a relationship, work for free, potentially. And uh, you may be interested to know that I got a warmer response from Akhil Ahmed than from any of the previous Christian incumbents of that role. And he's got in touch and put me uh, in touch with the head of development of the BBC with a view to looking at creating some positive programming. Interestingly, that one program idea he specifically picked out was a feature on the growth of churches in this city 
and church plants in particular. And um, it may be that that particular avenue comes to nothing. If not, I'm working with other print journalists and radio journalists and TV journalists about getting more positive stories out there. We had Christchurch featured in the News of the World magazine, Fabulous, last year. I'm in the middle of writing a novel at the moment because I think it's important that we get good literature out there that can shape the minds of young people in this nation. I'm just using this as an example to illustrate the fact that uh, I am trying to lead by example in making this nation different by trying things. Now, I have been in church all my life, and I've heard hundreds of sermons. I've forgotten most of them. But one thing I do remember from about 15 years ago while I was at university was a guy by the name of Rob Parsons. He said this, and this is all I remember from his talk, but never wait for a quiet day. Never wait for this mythical day when you're going to get some free time to do all that God has put in your heart. Now's the time to do it. And so I want to live that out now, and I want to encourage you to use whatever time you have to give yourself to using what God has put in your heart, your God-given creativity, to try new things, to initiate, to shape culture. And as part of that, what New Frontiers is doing on Saturday the 27th of March, and I think you've been plugging it, is the Everything Conference. And it's based on the verse in Psalm 24 that says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And so there's going to be a whole um, different stream of seminars there. I'll be doing one on the gospel at work, how we can change culture through our workplaces. There's one on the arts. Um, how can we encourage artists and sculptors and those in film and TV to actually create and initiate things that positively affect our culture? There's one on academics. How can we raise up people to love God with all their minds and shape the fight for truth in this nation? And I really, with all my heart want to encourage you to get along to that. It's on Saturday the 27th of March, it's £12 a ticket, £8 concessions, and it's at Westminster Chapel. Really want to encourage you to be there. Just the other thing I want to mention as part of this introduction is um, one of the things I want to do in terms of the fight for shaping culture and transforming culture in this nation is transform the way that people look and think at Christianity. And so one of the things we're doing is working with a number of other London churches um, on something called the Pentecost Festival, which is happening in May. Many of you may have been aware of it. Um, it's just a way of getting the church out there to convey that actually what we're all about, rather than simply meeting in our buildings on a Sunday, actually let's get into central London and actually mix with tourists and Londoners and people on the street to shape the way that people see Christianity in this nation. And so one of the things that I'm responsible for is running a huge stage in Leicester Square. We've got it from 12 until 6, and we're going to be having a number of Christian performers, artists, speakers throughout the day, and then a whole team of people who will be doing praying for people on the street, uh, prophetic evangelism, answering questions from people who are thinking, you know, what's going on on there? And so if you are a Christian artist or musician, and you're interested in performing on that stage, I'd love to talk to you. And likewise, if you're also interested in praying for people on the street, or just being part of a team, not just that Christchurch is doing, but that loads of churches in London are doing, I know HTB and Hillsong are running a big music conference at the Hammersmith Apollo. If you want to be part from, uh, of that, I'm here all day, so please do grab me at some point during the day. So I got a prophetic word about coming and sharing a little bit about uh, how we transform culture in this nation. And um, when Steph asked me to come, I thought, well, I'll probably go to a part of the Bible, because this is where the power is. Um, I'll probably go to a part of the Bible, you know, I'll look at a God follower in the Bible who really shaped uh, his culture through the secular workplace, someone like Joseph or Daniel or Esther. And I don't want to super-spiritualize anything, but uh, two weeks after Steph asked me to come, I had an extremely vivid dream that I can still remember. I'd arrived at Revelation, and I'd forgotten my notes. And uh, in my dream, I was really panicking and really stressed, and I was sitting in my car outside, and I could see you all coming in and thinking, what am I going to talk about? And um, I came in, and I sat through worship, and I hadn't got my notes, and what I'm doing. 
And in my dream, Steph came up to me and said, would you preach on Exodus 33? And uh, when he said that, this incredible wave of peace came over me, and I woke up. And when I had the dream a second time, I thought, maybe God's speaking to me. <laughs> so we're going to look at Exodus 33. So if you have a Bible, um, just in terms of the context where we pick up the story, the people of God have been freed from slavery in Egypt. Um, Pharaoh and his army have been destroyed in the Red Sea. Moses has gone up the mountain. He's got the Ten Commandments. He's been up there for quite a while. As he comes down, the people of God have given themselves to idolatry in the form of worshipping a golden calf. And that's where we pick up the story. We're going to read the whole chapter. Exodus 33. Here we go, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you, because you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn, and no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments, and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp, and whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to his tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young age, Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your way so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. It's just four things that we're going to be looking at today. What is Moses asking for? Why does he want it? Who is he going to to get it? And how does he get it? And how do we make Moses' prayer our own prayer? What, why, who, how? That's where we're headed. So first of all, what is Moses really asking for? Well, essentially, if you look at the context, essentially he's looking for and asking for relationship. The word for presence literally means face. I want your face to go with us. But he's not simply asking for relationship. It goes deeper than that. I have relationships with people I don't see very often. He's also asking for closeness of relationship, proximity of relationship. 
We get to verse 7. It gets a little bit repetitive, actually. We have the people camping over here, and this tent of meeting where relationship happens, it's outside the camp. It's some distance away. Moses has to go out to the tent of meeting. The people have to go out to the tent of meeting. And a few chapters after this, Moses is given instructions for a new tent of meeting, the tabernacle. And when they move out from this place where we read this story, we read in Numbers 2.17, this new tent of meeting is right in the middle of the camp. It's a quote from Numbers 2.17. There's three tribes camping on each side of this new tent of meeting. That's what Moses is fighting for in this passage. God in the midst of his people. But his prayer goes even deeper than that when he asks for what Bible teacher and author Os Guinness calls the greatest and boldest prayer in the whole Bible. Show me your glory. What does that mean? Well, the word for glory literally means heaviness or weightiness or density or substance. What does it mean? Well, we might refer to a real culture shaper, a culture transformer like William Wilberforce or Hannah Moore or Mother Teresa as a man or woman of real substance. We might refer to somebody of real prowess in the world of politics or law as a political or legal heavyweight. What do we mean? We mean their very being. We mean their very essence. This is what Moses is asking for. He wants to get hold of God himself. No substitute will do. I want to get hold of your substance. This is what he's praying for. Famous teacher Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, when preaching on this passage, on that particular verse, he says this. We may have been Christians for many years, but have we ever really longed for some personal direct knowledge and experience of God? Oh, I know we pray for causes, we pray for the church, we pray for missionaries, we pray for our own efforts that we organise, yes. But that is not what I'm concerned about. We all ask for personal blessings, but how much do we know of this desire for God himself? That is what Moses asked for. Show me your glory, take me a step nearer. I want to get hold of you, God. And if we want to shape our culture, we need to get hold of God. What this city needs is not a novel by Andy Tilsley, it needs Jesus. And so we want to get hold of him. The whole of the 20th century was once described as a footnote to the work of a man called Friedrich Nietzsche. Nietzsche was the man who coined the phrase, God is dead. We don't need God anymore. Let's just get rid of him. And one of the things that Nietzsche taught was when a culture decides that we don't need God anymore, what you will observe in that culture is a weightlessness, a substancelessness. And the likes of T.S. Eliot and Walt Whitman and Karl Marx all agreed with him. What did he mean? What he meant was this, when a culture gets rid of God, when the substance goes, they will fill the void with a substancelessness existence, going for things that bring temporary pleasure but no long-lasting satisfaction. Money, sex, power, comfort, pleasure, self, a glittering CV. And I would humbly suggest that's exactly what we view in the culture in which we live today. It's a substancelessness existence. And we have to be careful as Christians that we're not affected by that. The moment I begin to affect, be affected negatively by that and go after image or self or comfort, God is very capable of reminding me how weak I am and my desperate need of him. I'll give you an example. I do stupid things on a regular basis. And uh, when I was kind of 18, 19, I thought I was God's gift. I mean, I was a Christian, but I loved me a lot. And um, I've been reading in Corinthians this verse that says, when you're tempted, God won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. He'll provide a way out. So you can handle it. And I thought, oh, that's encouraging, isn't it? And I was in this meeting, and I felt God impress that verse on me for one of the leaders. And I thought, oh, this is special. I am God's man of power for the hour. So I, <laughs> I, I wandered up to this leader, and I whispered in his ear, 1 Corinthians 10.10. 10. 
And I wandered off very piously thinking, I am a prophet of the Lord. All these inferior Christians, they've switched off at the end of the meeting. I'm still listening to what the Lord is saying. And I wandered into this kind of canteen area, and this voice came into my head. Is that really the verse you've given them? Suddenly felt very sick, and I thought, I need to find somewhere private. So the nearest place I could find was a toilet. And I ran into the toilet cubicle, closed the door, sat down, 1 Corinthians 10. (gasps) When you're tempted, God won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but he'll provide a way out so you can handle it. Great. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Ah, well, I thought naively, the Bible is an encouraging book. I've probably given them another encouraging verse and been used by God, even when I didn't realize it. So I scanned up three incy-wincy verses earlier, just three little verses. This is the prophetic word I gave him. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. (laughs) Now, I've met lots of Christians I've wanted to give that verse to, not on this particular occasion. The point I'm making is this, is the moment I begin to think, I'm the man, I'm the man, I'm Mr. Cool. The moment I begin to get tainted by my culture, God is very capable of reminding me how weak I am and how desperately I need him. It's a substancelessness existence. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was right. How much do I really know of this desire for God himself? Show me your glory, your substance. Take me a step nearer. So if that's what Moses wanted, why did he want it? Well, I find it very interesting that at the start of this chapter, God says, look, I'm not going to go with you, but I'm going to give you an angel. That, That sounds pretty good. I'd quite like an angel with me. Not only that, but verse 2, this angel will drive out all of your enemies. They're listed. Not only that, this angel will not only conquer your enemies, but he will lead you into a land, verse 3, flowing with milk and honey. Sign of God's blessing and provision. Well, that sounds a pretty good angel to have with you, I think. An enemy driving out, blessing and provision giving angel. And yet, and yet, even the sinful people of God are intelligent enough to realize that that's not good enough. You can lead us into all the blessings... You can lead us into amazing provision. You can drive out all our enemies. It's not worth it. You don't go with us. It's just not worth going. Getting hold of the substance of God is better even than the promises of God. Moses and the Israelites realized this. Many of you, if you know your Greek mythology, will know the story of the sirens, these mythical mermaid-like creatures who would sing this haunting and captivating song And even the most experienced sailors would so want to indulge themselves on their music, they'd end up shipwrecking their boats on the rocks. Ulysses had a plan to beat the sirens. And he said to his sailors, whatever you see or hear me do, don't obey me. And he stuffed up their ears with cloth, then he tied himself to the ship's mast. And the ship sailed by, and the sirens began to sing their haunting and captivating music. And Ulysses cried out in agony. He so wanted to indulge himself on their music, and he couldn't because he was tied to the mast. He had painful visions. It was torture and agony for him. Jason had a different plan. Because Jason managed to get hold of Orpheus, whose music was so sublime and so wonderful that it made even the sirens' music sound dull in comparison. And as Jason's boat sailed by the sirens, the sirens began to sing their sensual and alluring music. And Jason just said to Orpheus, play. And Orpheus played. And it didn't matter what the sirens did, because they had Orpheus with them. Two views about how many people view Christianity. Many people have a Ulysses view of Christianity. Oh, there's all these pleasures, self and pleasure and sex and greed and money, and I can't live for them because I'm a Christian and it's awful. And then there are those who get it. 
and those who realize that we have the music of Orpheus, so to speak. We have grace, unconditional love, joy and peace, the presence of the Holy Spirit, and it's better than anything this world has to offer. It's like the music of Orpheus. We get hold of God himself. And with it, with it comes a whole myriad of blessings that we get in this passage. You get hold of God, you get so many blessings with it. Verse 11, friendship with God. Verse 13, favour from God. Verse 14, rest. Rest. This is fascinating. Before any battle has been fought, before any giant has been slain, before any enemy army has been overcome, and yet God is promising rest. It's not rest from battles. This is rest in battles. Reminds me of Jesus' words in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest. Some of you will be sawn in two. Some of you will be crucified upside down. Some of you will be mauled to death by lions in an arena. But come to me, come to me, and I will give you rest. These promises are for us as well. Friendship with God. Favour from God. Rest. Verse 16, it's a sign of God's pleasure. Verse 16, it makes them distinctive. Verse 19, they get goodness and mercy and compassion. Verse 22, they get protection. And all this, all this is as available for us today as it was for Moses and the people of God then. We get hold of God, the substance of God. That's what this city needs. That's what this nation needs. We want to get hold of him. It's better than anything else. Better than any glittering CV. Better than any earthly accomplishments. We get hold of him. We get a myriad of blessings beside So if that's what Moses wanted, and that's why he wanted it, who was he going to to get it? Now, this may seem like a stupid question. Obviously, he was going to God. But some of you may have picked up an apparent contradiction in the passage. Verse 11, it says the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Verse 20, God says, you cannot see my face. No man may see me and live. It's repeated in verse 23. My face must not be seen. What's going on? Well, some commentators think that in verse 11, the phrase face-to-face is just simply a sign of intimacy. It's like a saying or a colloquialism. It's like it's not really face-to-face communication going on. It's just a sign of how intimate Moses is with God. I think that is a lazy interpretation of the text. And I think both verses mean exactly what they say. Moses is talking face-to-face in verse 11, and he can't see the face of God in verses 20 and 23. So what's happening? Well, I think in verse 11, it is the pre-incarnate person of Jesus that Moses is talking to. And in verses 20 and 23, it is God the Father whose face must not be seen. And these verses are revealing the Trinity to us. Reverend Richard Buse, who led All Souls Langham Place for over 20 years, when preaching on this passage, he says this, that every time, every time in the Bible, a human being is in face-to-face communication with a divine presence, it is the second person of the Trinity that is being referred to. These verses are revealing Jesus to us. It gets even clearer as you begin to read through Exodus. Into chapter 34, Moses is on his face before God. We say here he's prostrate and he prays this. Exodus 34, 9. O Lord, if I have found favour in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. O Lord, can the Lord go with us. Two mentions of the word Lord and used very deliberately by the writer. And if you continue to read on into chapters 35 and 36, it's harder to see in the English, but it is there. The Spirit is also referred to and is also called Lord. These verses are revealing the Trinity to us. Now, I just want to park on this briefly so we can kind of get our head around what's the Trinity all about. There's three parts to the doctrine of the Trinity. One, God is three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Secondly, 
Each person is fully God. God the Father, 100% God. Jesus the Son, 100% God. The Spirit, 100% God. Thirdly, there is one God. Now, if that doesn't make sense, then you'd be right. Three doesn't equal one. One doesn't equal three. But just because it doesn't make sense doesn't mean we should just throw the doctrine out altogether. Because logically speaking, if we are talking about a being that threw stars into space, if we are talking about someone that created the intricacies of nature and breathed life into the whole of creation, can we ever, ever really, in our human weakness, expect to get our heads around someone like that? Logically speaking, we should expect to find someone that doesn't make sense. It's what we begin to discover as we explore the Trinity. If I got to the end of time and I found that God was like a perfect version of Steph Liston, well, that would be all right, I suppose. But at the end of the day, it would be a bit of an anticlimax, I think, to be honest. But as we begin to explore God, three as one, one as three, you begin to think, oh, you're so not like Steph Liston. There's no one like you. You're unfathomable. You're unimaginable. I can't get my head around you. And rather than to confusion, it should lead us to worship. That should be our response to this passage, worship. Let me try and put it a different way. It's Dave, isn't it? Yes. little quiz question for you, okay? Can I ask you what that is, please? Not a quick question? Uh, it's a square. It's a square, correct? For the benefit of the podcast, it's an artistically brilliant square. Okay? Next question. Can I ask you what that is, please? It's a cube. <laughs> you have fallen into my little trap, my friend. Because it's like a cube, but it's not actually a cube, because it's missing a crucial third dimension. And in the same way, if I had to communicate to you what a cube was, but I only had the two dimensions of a piece of paper, well, I could draw it from different angles. I could use my very best eloquence to describe what a cube is, but I can never fully communicate what a cube is to you without the third dimension of depth. And in the same way, I can try my very best to describe what God is like through the Trinity. Sometimes reveals himself like this. It's a little bit like that. But at the end of the day, he is a dimension beyond our understanding. But oh, oh, it should lead us to worship. It should be our response to this passage. And looking at this passage through New Testament eyes, we can see even more clearly God revealing himself through the Trinity. Jesus himself says in John 6:46, No man, no man has ever seen the Father. And yet, John 1.14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory. This is who Moses is coming to. God revealing himself as Trinity, and our response to it should be worship. So what did Moses want? He wanted to get hold of the substance, the glory of God. Why? It's like the music of Orpheus. It's better than anything this world has to offer. And with it comes a myriad of blessings beside who is he going to to get it? God revealing himself as Trinity. So fourthly and finally, how do we get it? How do we see our neighborhoods transformed? How do we see culture shaped? How do we get hold of God in our workplaces? How do we see this church go to new levels? There well, are three things I think this passage teaches us. You want to get hold of the substance of God, firstly, ask. That's what we learn, ask. That's all you've got to do. Moses is totally reliant on the generosity of God. If you look at the mess the people of God were in, all he's got to do is ask. And I find it significant that when Moses says, show me your glory, God's response is, okay, okay, I'll do the very thing you've asked. I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. 
and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And I find it significant that as Moses asked to get hold of the substance of God, what he finds is goodness and mercy and compassion just pouring over him. And if you want to get hold of the very best, if you want to see your culture completely transformed, just got to ask. And whatever sins lurk in your past, and however insignificant you feel, however limited you think your gifting may be, you just got to ask. And even today in this place, you can find goodness and mercy and compassion pouring over you. And in a few moments' time, I'm going to lead us in asking for more of God. You want the best, just got to ask. And the Apostle Paul is reading this passage, and he quotes it in Romans chapter 9, in the middle of a long argument that describes that our salvation rests totally on God and has nothing at all to do with us. And he quotes that, I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. He quotes that in Romans 9.15. In the very next verse he says, look, this just goes to see. This just shows you that our salvation, what? And I quote, depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. You want to get hold of the very best. We want to see this city completely changed. We need him. We can't do it on our own, so we've got to ask. But when we do, when we do, we find goodness and mercy and compassion. So firstly, we ask. Secondly, take off ornaments. This is repeated in verses 4 and 5 and 6. So I think the writer's trying to get our attention. And a lot of commentators read that and just shrug their shoulders and say, I don't really know what it means. So I don't actually think it's that hard to interpret. Because in the previous chapter, it's the ornaments that the people of God took off to melt down, to make into a golden calf. The ornaments were the things that led them into idolatry. And what I think God and Moses are saying to the people of God is, hey, if you mean business, then anything that has led you into sin in the past, get rid of it. Anything that could compromise you, take it off. Get rid of it. What's the application for us? If late night TV leads you into sin, get rid of it. If the internet leads you into sin, get rid of it. I would rather that you did not have a laptop, than you had a laptop, and it led you into internet pornography. What about your job, ambition, workaholism? If it's an ornament, take it off. I would rather that you earned less money and had less influence in this city, actually, rather than you worked your socks off and ruined your marriage as a result. If it's an ornament, get rid of it, take it off. It's the application for us. I am struck when I look at the lives of great men and women of God who I really admire how their adventures in God often started through taking off ornaments. David Wilkerson had a massive ministry to drug addicts and gang members in New York. leads a huge church in Times Square. His adventure in God started decades ago. He'd come home every evening just just to watch TV for half an hour. Nothing dodgy, just the news or something. And I'm told, though I don't know whether this is true, that when you watch TV, your brain is more relaxed than even when you're asleep. It's just really great to just sit back and absorb. And while he was doing that, he just felt the Holy Spirit prodding him. Maybe it's an ornament. Why don't you just pray for this half an hour instead? And David Wilkerson talks about how he really wrestled with God over this decision. Laid out fleeces. And eventually he decided, oh, I'm just going to get rid of it. And he got rid of it. And as he began to pray, God spoke to him and his adventure began. And the whole course of his life changed. Why? He just took off an ornament. Got rid of it because he wanted the best. Want to get hold of God. Want to see real change. Lauren Cunningham, led Youth with a Mission, YWAM. 
Whatever you think of mission agencies, you cannot help but read the story of how YWAM got started. It's a book called Is That Really You, God? Brilliant. You cannot help but read that and think God was in that. He said tens of thousands of young people on mission right the way across the earth. His adventuring God started when a family member came to him and said, um, I'm offering you an amazing job with a great salary. Now, there is nothing wrong with amazing jobs and great salaries. They are gifts from God. But for Lauren Cunningham, it was an ornament. And he knew God had spoken to him about something else. So he says, I'm really sorry. I'm going to have to turn that down. And it caused divisions in his family. And he never had much money to speak of. But oh, he went on the most wonderful adventure. Why? Well, he just learned to get rid of an ornament. I wonder if fear of man is an ornament for anyone here. When I was going through my teens, I was very badly physically and verbally bullied. And uh, I kind of respond to the bullying by just being really quiet. If I say nothing, no one will say anything bad to me. And um, I had these flyers for this evangelistic event, and they were just awful. They were horrible flyers. I have no idea who designed them, but they put me off the event, and I was a Christian. I mean, I just, you don't hand these out to non-Christians. They're just horrible flyers. And I began to feel the Holy Spirit prodding me at 16. Maybe this is an ornament. Maybe fear of rejection is stopping you getting the best. Why don't you hand them out? No, I replied. Why not? Why not give it a go? Maybe you need to take this ornament off. Never in a million lifetimes. And I fought God. Oh, I fought God. And he won. So the following day, I went into school, and I handed out these flyers for this event. And everything that I told God would happen, happened. They pushed me around. They ripped them up, they put them in the bin, they laughed in my face, they made me feel this big, and I went home furious. I told you that would happen! Why are you... It's just obvious. I've probably got people further away from God than closer to God. Why did you make me do that? I'm mad! Why? And heaven was silent. And the following day, I went into school muttering under my breath. In the first break, a guy comes up to me and says, uh, Andy... Hello. Um, you know those flyers you were handing out yesterday? Oh, here we go. Yes. Um, my mum found it in my bag last night and is forcing me to go. Uh, can I come? Oh, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> Overhearing this conversation, another guy, Tim, says, well, if, if he's going, I'd actually quite like to go, actually, as well. Oh, great. Two people I hate. Fantastic. This guy then goes home and talks to his mate Dave. They think, oh, I'm going to come along as well if you're going to go. Dave's sister here about it. She said, I'm going to come along as well. Four people I hate. Brilliant. <laughs> and at that event, three out of those four people made first-time commitments to Jesus Christ. And I learned a lesson. That if I want to get hold of the best, if I want to get hold of the substance of God, then ornaments have to come off. What is it for you? Stepping up to more leadership responsibility? Talking to a friend about going on Christianity Explored. Maybe fear of being baptised in front of a room full of people or inviting your friends along to your baptism. If you want to get hold of the best, ornaments have got to go. That's what this passage teaches us. So you want to get hold of the substance of God, you want to see culture really transformed, ask. You find goodness, mercy and compassion today. Take off ornaments. Anything that could lead you into sin, cause you to miss out on the best, get rid of it. And thirdly and finally, you want the best, fight. And I'm really struck by the exchange between Moses and God in this passage. I'm not going to go with you. 
Not good enough, says Moses. We need your presence. We need your face. Okay, my presence will go with you. Not good enough, says Moses. I need a guarantee. If you don't go with us, it's not worth going. Okay, my presence will go with you, and I'll give you rest. I want more. Show me your glory, goodness, mercy, compassion. And there is something we need to learn about Moses' persistence here. If you read through the Bible, there is something God seems to love about those who keep on coming back to him. Whether it's Jacob wrestling with the angel Jesus in Genesis 32, or the parable of the persistent widow in Luke 18, who gets what she wants because she keeps on knocking. There is something God seems to love about those who keep on coming back to get hold of the best. And if we want to get hold of the best, we have to fight for it. I think this is something Moses learned during his lifetime as well. I'm fascinated by the exchange between Moses and Pharaoh. Let my people go, says Moses, that they may worship me in the desert. Pharaoh says, no. And after eight plagues, not ten, after eight plagues, Pharaoh relents and says, okay, the men can go. Now, if I was Moses, I'd be like, eight plagues. Sorry, ladies. Sorry, kids. Lads, we're free. Let's go. Genius. <laughs> Moses says, no, not good enough. So plague number nine comes. Pharaoh says, okay, men, women, children, I can go. At that point, I'd be thinking, I'm the man, I'm the man. Ladies, kids, I've stood my ground. Let's leave Egypt now. Moses, he says, no. Because if we don't go with livestock, we'll have nothing to sacrifice when we get there. So Pharaoh says, can't go then. Livestock stay here. So plague number 10 comes, the death on the firstborn. And the men and the women and the children and the livestock and the plunder of the Egyptians leaves Egypt. He learned to fight for the best. And if you want to get hold of the best, you're going to have to learn to fight. Just making myself slightly vulnerable. Three years ago, I'd been working for Christchurch for about a year. And I was finding it really hard. The emotional weight of leadership felt overwhelming. I mean, Steph may remember, I asked him to pray for me at prayer and fasting. I just wasn't in a great place. And I wasn't ready to walk away from Jesus, but London and the church probably is. Just felt it was really lonely, it was really pressured. I felt really stressed. I was just ready to walk away. And in my own devotional life, I was reading through the book of Esther. And God just spoke to me in the most powerful way. Just a story in short form is this. There is an evil plan to annihilate the people of God. And through the wisdom and courage of Esther and Mordecai, the plan is exposed and the man behind the plan is hanged and killed, Haman. But there's a problem. Because there's this date in the diary still to annihilate the people of God. And the king, the king is now on Esther and Mordecai's side. He says, look, I'm totally behind you, but there's a problem. I've ordered this day of annihilation for your people with my signet ring. I can't revoke it because of the laws in our culture. I'm totally behind you, but I can't change this day of annihilation. And it says that what Mordecai did with the king's blessing is he sent out a message to every province that said simply this, you can fight. When that day comes, you can fight. And it says of the people of God that even though that day was a million miles away, that in their spirits they went from fear and trepidation to feasting and celebration. It's almost as if no one had told them that they could fight. And yet suddenly, oh, we can fight after all. They started rejoicing. And when the day of annihilation come, instead of being overwhelmed, they wiped the floor with their enemies. And as I read that story, I just felt the spirit come upon me. I felt him say, Andy, I know it's hard, but you can fight. And I responded by saying, Lord, I do not want to be a man 
that walks away when things get difficult. I want to be a man that perseveres and fights for the best. And wherever you are at in your walk with God, both individually and corporately as a church, if you want to get hold of the best, you're going to have to learn to fight. If I look through history, some of the great victories of the last two, three, four, five hundred years and beyond have come through men and women of God who learned to fight. Even the doctrine that Jesus is really God, Athanasius had to fight for that for ten years. And we live in the benefit of that today. What do you want to be different in 70 years' time? Well, you're going to have to fight for it. And my prayer for you as a church is not just that individually you learn to fight, but actually that in 50, 60, 70 years' time, this city is different and better off because of you. But rather than God simply landing blessing in your lap, that you learn to fight for the best. And that throughout your history, there is victory after victory after victory of faith. And I pray that for you. And in a minute, I'm going to get you to stand. I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to come. I'm just going to pray for you. And God puts lion-hearted courage in your spirits to fight for the best. And for some of you, maybe students, maybe this means getting up early. Maybe this means using your free time to begin to write books now or write music now. I look back to my university years, I wasted much of them. What is it for you? What do you need to fight on? I finish with this. When I finished university, I knew God had spoken to me about getting into the media. And I sent off 150 applications and was rejected from all of them. And um, I started, I was desperate for money. Um, so I started applying to jobs that weren't in the media. And I went to this one interview, had a massive three-hour exam, an amazingly qualified field of candidates, had to do a presentation in front of all the directors, and I got offered the job. Amazing salary, company you'd have all have heard of, but it wasn't in the media. And I remember coming to God and thinking, God, this is an amazing opportunity. You've obviously opened the door here. What am I going to do? It's not in the media. I don't know what to do. And to be fair, heaven was silent. And I picked the phone up and I made the most stupid slash brave phone call I've ever made. Hi, thank you so much for this opportunity. Going to have to turn it down. I need to pursue other career opportunities. Put the phone down. What have I done? And within three weeks of making that phone call, I had my first shift in my dream job with the BBC. And I learned to listen. That if I want to get hold of the best, I'm going to have to learn to fight. I'm going to have to be a man of faith. And my prayer for you as a church is that you are a church of real faith. What did Moses want? He wanted to get hold of the glory, the substance of God. Nothing else would do. Why? It's like the music of Orpheus. It's better than anything this world has to offer. Glittering CV, great accomplishments, amazing blessings, better than even the promises of God. It's like the music of Orpheus. Who is he going to to get it? God revealing himself as the Trinity. Oh, he should lead us to worship. And how? How do we get hold of the best? How do we shape culture? We just ask. Take off ornaments. Take them off. And we fight. We fight. Can I ask us to stand?